since 1971. Uh, by the way, speaking of that live Seeger album, we played it back in its entirety this morning. You may have heard that on Ken Calvert's show. Detroit's only real rock and roll radio station in the decade of the 90s. And then I remember coming here and uh, they had such a problem because it would rain and they'd be having some type of wild metal concert and the kids out on the hill would be picking up sod, yep. rowing it. Oh, I remember. I Oh, man. I almost got belted with one, but it was just enough dirt to ruin the beer I had just bought. I was furious. If it rocks, it's on the riff in the early part of the 21st century. The actual site they do it, Gobbler's Knob. Oh, yeah, Gobbler's Knob. Oh, Gobbler's that. Knob. Yep. Mm. That's in Groundhog Day, the movie. Sounds like a porn name. Yeah. Gobbler's, Gobbler's Knob. It makes me uncomfortable. It's like moist. Yeah, don't like don't, a, you don't like Gobbler's no. Knob. I'll say it more. For nearly 50 years, we are, have been, and continue to be 101 WRIF. Welcome to the podcast, The History of WRIF. I am Mike Staff. I was a DJ on the Riff for 14 years, from 1992 to 2006, and it is my pleasure to be hosting this podcast in which we're talking to the people and the personalities that have made the Riff the Riff. And so far on the podcast, we've talked to Arthur P., Ken Kelver, JJ and the Morning Crew, Karen Savelli, Steve Costan, big names and big personalities that will always be synonymous with WRIF. You know, when we think of the Riff, we think of rock and roll, of course. We think fun and humor and really all things Detroit. But the Riff story simply would not be complete without talking to today's guest, uh, Peter Werby. Peter is probably commercial radio's only self described anarchist, atheist, and vegetarian, and uh, he's most well-known to Riff listeners as the host of Night Call, which was commercial radio's longest-running live call-in talk show. Peter, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Well, thank you, and uh, it's a pleasure to be in there with all those names, all those people. What, what memories, what, what a tradition. Incredible. And Mike, you were part of it. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, 14 great years of my life for sure. And you, you, and you know, Peter, Arthur P. gets the most credit for being on the air at the Riff the longest, almost 40 years. But the fact of the matter is, you were on Riff longer, weren't you? Well, it's hard to do the math because I began in 1970 and ended in 2016. But I also... Took some stops along the way at WABX, uh, W4, uh, what are we missing? Wheels, mm. and I came back. So I, uh, I don't know. It, it, it's close. But I always did, uh, you know, I'm, I'm the original layabout. I, whenever I worked full-time, which I did once in a while in my career, uh, I, I was working at a high anxiety level and soon enough wound up back uh, weekends and part-time and what have you. And that, and that was always fine with me. And I loved, of course, the talk show. Well, yeah, you like, like Arthur, you were both at Riff before it was even WRIF. 101.1 was WXYZ FM radio. And in 71, it changed the call letters to WRIF. I couldn't, I couldn't um, recall who was hired first. Do you know at XYZ? You were Art? Oh, I, I'm sure I was. It was May of 1970 that I began. And uh, Dick Kernan hired you? 
Dick Kernan hired me, the legendary Dick Kernan, one of the few uh, three men when I talk about uh, who uh, was important to me having the professional success and uh, also the financial stability. Dick Kernan is right in there because, I mean, I was a layabout with a commensurate salary up until then, you know, in 60s and all that, you kind of, uh, uh, you know, get along. I don't know how we did, but we did. But uh, WABX was the big rocker in town. And when WXYZ FM went on the air, everybody that was, quote, hip, just held their nose, you know, who's this? And they and they had, I don't know if you've talked about this in previous sessions, but they had these, uh, first they did Beatles and Stones. And it's all they played were Beatles and Stones. And they had it on a loop. And then they had some recorded guy, uh, um, what was it? Doc, not Dr. John, um, Brother John. Brother John, and uh, and then Kernan, in his wisdom, figured out, unless we get some local focus to this, no one is ever going to listen. So I worked, as I do today, uh, talk about uh, longevity, worked with the Fifth Estate, then was a newspaper, now it's a magazine, 55 years later, but we had these different uh, sections in the paper, uh, youth news, labor news, um, kind of women's news. So um, Dick Kernan, was he paying us? I don't even know if he was paying us now that I think of it. But uh, slotted us, uh, both of, a number of us in with those specialty shows. And Harvey Oshinsky, who began the Fifth Estate newspaper, began this talk show called Spare Change, which was, you know, that was somehow had some cachet to it back then rather than just a homeless guy on the street. It was hippies coming, hey, man, you got any spare change? So uh, Harvey went on to be the news director at WABX, and he said, um, hey, Pete, you want to do it? And I said, sure. So I got all my rad buddies in there, and uh, what do they say? The rest is hysteria. Now, did you change the name right when Harvey left from Spare Change to Nicole? Was that you that did that right away? Not right away. Harvey always stole names. The Fifth Estate was stolen from a coffee house, in, uh, and Gaia Bless, uh, you know, uh, Harvey, you know, that he's a genius. Uh, and uh, also uh, Spare Change. So I had a contest. And uh, The Fifth Estate, is that a common, I don't, it may be commonly known. There's, there was a movie about, um, what's his name? Begins with an A, the WikiLeaks guy. I can't think of his name right now. Um, oh, Assange? Uh, Julian Assange. Yeah, oh, Julian, Julian Assange. Assange. Anyways. The French Revolution, real quickly, there were the three estates, the, the royalty, the clergy, the people. Someone during the 1920s said the press is so powerful, it's a fourth estate, one up, the fifth estate. And there's the fifth estate. So I had um, uh, an on-air uh, um, on contest, and someone wrote in and said, how about Night Call? Oh, really? So, yeah. Wow, great. Yeah. Great uh, name, of course. Sure. Yeah. Well, so the Fifth Estate, um, you got you started working at the Fifth Estate before WXYZ, and you were there kind of as a, a journalist, right? I was there, and I, uh, Harvey Ofschitsky began it in 1965. I joined it in uh, uh, 1966. God, that's so long ago. It makes it makes me sound like I'm 80 years old. <laughs> well, the Fifth Estate is interesting because as 
as I recall the story, Russ Gibb, who was the founder of the Grandy Ballroom, he said that there was like this really cool kind of scene going on at the Fifth Estate. So when he wanted to um, to start this new rock club, he wanted to get in touch with the hippies and the beatniks that kind of knew the pulse of rock and roll in Detroit. So he went to the Fifth Estate, and that's where he met John Sinclair and a lot of other people and because he loved just the culture and the vibe that was going on there. Yeah, absolutely. And it was Sinclair that really tipped him wise to all the bands. Sinclair, this genius of, uh, of music, of rock and roll, and of jazz, he was the one who, uh, who told Russ Gibb everything he needed to know, plus some. Yeah. When you took the show over from Harvey, um, did you guys share the same point of view? Like, was it a pretty seamless um, flow? From pretty much so. I was always uh, farther to the left uh, than he was. Uh, I always say I'm so far left that I fell off the spectrum. <laughs> it's funny you mentioned that about uh, how I would, uh, I would just to provoke people, I would say, uh, as you said, I'm an anarchist, atheist, vegetarian. And the lines would be silent. <laughs> so, okay, you know, we'd have to get back on to, uh, some uh, subject. But, you know, all of those um, categories are easily misunderstood, particularly uh, these days of what's going on. You know, you say, anarchists, oh, Werby's out breaking windows and starting fires. You know, well, not this time around. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so in, like, this... What's going on right now, so our listeners know, in case they're listening to this podcast a little bit later, today is June 11, 2020. We're on kind of the heels of the COVID-19 thing. Um, we're right in the middle of huge um, political strife with uh, George Floyd just being horribly murdered by a cop. Um, you know, I look back on the, the riots of 67. I wasn't born yet, but from what I'd read about and learned about it, boy, it's got to feel like a lot of similarities to you, Peter. Well, of course, the scope of destruction in 1967, huge swaths of uh, the inner city neighborhoods were just burned to the ground. I mean, although uh, now we get to see this right, uh, you know, as it happens on CNN and uh, Fox and MSNBC. But um, it, uh, as bad as it was, an inappropriate response. Well, I'm going to erase that and but inappropriate. I'll come back to explain why in, in just a second. Um, that uh, this, the damage done in 1967 was so immense and over such a huge geographical area that, um, it, you know, there's no comparison. Also, what are good videos? People um, are, are good visuals, rather. People uh, walking down the street with signs endlessly or, or police stations burning and people running in and out of, uh, uh, of stores uh, looting. And why I took it back about saying inappropriate, you know, it's inappropriate what caused that response. You know, you, it, it's not, you know, we learned as kids, you can't say, well, he started it or something like that. But riots throughout history, we're talking about since the advent of cities a thousand years ago or thousands of years ago, when people get angry, they riot, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, and a lot of time it's inappropriate. 
what you know, there were like draft riots in in New York. I remember the Gangs of New York. Remember that movie? Mm -hmm. And uh, the draft riots were aimed at black people, killing black people at that time. Uh, you know, there were you know London in the mid 18th century. Uh, British troops killed 300 rioters. You know, with army troops because you know they were trying to burn down the Bank of uh, London and all that. So it, to some extent, it's um, social vengeance or social and uh, you know social revenge. And you and I, we can sit there and think, well, that's not the appropriate way to do it. And, uh, you know, the optics are bad. And, you know, if they want to get the, the message across, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, people that are doing it are deaf to counsel. Mm. So um, the best thing to do is to create a, um, a society and communities where no one even thinks about uh, doing that. Um, do you recall what spurred the riots of 67? What was the genesis of that? Police brutality. Yeah, it's crazy how yeah. 53 years later, police's well, heavy-handed tactics haven't evolved. I was going out, I was driving out to one of these many demonstrations uh, <clears throat> last Sunday, and somebody was playing on mainstream radio a cut from Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, about police brutality, and I'm thinking, oh, did he just record that yesterday? Right. So we'll see, we're going to see whether anything significant um, is altered. I mean, I just posted something in, um, I don't know, it was in Los Angeles, or actually in Hollywood. There was a, a demonstration, Black Lives Matter, 50,000 people. Now, I mean, can you imagine if 50,000 people um, were out in the streets saying, DJs suck, talk show hosts suck? Right. You know? I mean, we think, man, what, what are we doing wrong here? I mean, how have we created such, um, you know, social uh, disapproval? I mean, on one hand, of course, um, you know, we, uh, we, do, we all depend on the police uh, uh, for our security and safety. And what, again, we have to do is create a social context where the poor don't act out the script that poor do all across the world, no matter their nationality, color, race, or whatever. If you have poor people, you know there's going to be violence, crime, um, you know, uh, addiction, uh, drug trafficking, uh, uh, spousal and child abuse. It's not what causes people to be poor. It's a symptom. It's symptomatic of poverty. Hey, this sounds like I'm on. <laughs> Hi, you're on the air. Right from Beverly City. Go ahead. It sounds like night call. <laughs> Coming up. Thankfully, most police are motivated by, uh, by serving and protecting. But there is a percentage that function as the enforcers do on hockey teams. And they're the guys that routinely have the highest number of brutality uh, complaints and, and lawsuits to the extent that big cities have to tuck away in their budgets tens of millions of dollars to pay off these egregious, uh, these suits against these egregious acts, and and yet they uh, and and also the majority of cops never even pull their gun out of their holster. Mm -hmm. The majority of police never even unbuckle their holster. This is the history of WRIF, the podcast. We encourage you to vote on November 4th, but keep in mind that it's your First Amendment right to speak out on any issue you choose. Freedom of speech is the fundamental right of every American citizen. 
Legendary personalities from Detroit's iconic WRIF. We shouldn't forget that the right to vote is something many people who came before us fought hard to attain. We'll see at the polls in November, but we'll never shut up. Here is Mike Staff and our special guest, Peter Werby. I'm curious, Peter, um, do you think things are different now? Do you think this is going to make things different? You would think so. I don't, it's hard to gauge, but from your visuals, and I've been mostly going out in the suburbs uh, to things, um, and uh, 2,000 people in Birmingham, mm-hmm. 99% white, mostly everywhere I go, it's, all, it's white people. It's white people saying, you know, acting out of moral indignation, you know, ethical outrage that this uh, keeps going on. On the talk show, one of the you know, people would say, well, there's not a lot of police brutality. I said, Google police violence and, and go to videos. Right. And, you know, you can say, well, you don't know the whole story. You didn't see what before. And I said, well, look at some of those and you tell me, you know, what could have happened before that justifies it. I mean, uh, can I swear on this? No. Sure. Yeah. I mean, sh- being shit kickers is what cops have always been since they were set up in the early 19th century. And you get more, thankfully, most police are motivated by, uh, by serving and protecting. But there is a percentage that function as the enforcers do on hockey teams. And they're the guys that routinely have the highest number of brutality uh, complaints and, and lawsuits to the extent that big cities have to tuck away in their budgets tens of millions of dollars to pay off these egregious, uh, these suits against these egregious acts. And, and yet they, uh, and, and also the majority of cops never even pull their gun out of their holster. Mm-hmm. The majority of police never even unbuckle their holster um, because when something's going on, there they get Derek, you know, he loves to do it. You know, I mean, that, that's his gig. And, and that, you know, he's beating the crap out of them, and they're just standing back like this. And it's in the ethos of police. It's not like, you know, you think those three guys uh, vacated their ethical responsibility. In an overall picture, they certainly did. Um, I'm sure they didn't think he was killing them. I'm sure that Chauvin didn't think he was killing them. It was just this guy, guy he knew from a bar where they were bouncers and figured, uh, hey, you know, maybe this, well, I don't, I don't want to guess. But I don't know. Um, it's, uh, will it change? I don't know. I mean, they're... they're it they're, seems like there's got to be something culturally broken inside of police departments because for a guy to have 17 or 18 complaints like this against him, I think that the chief of police would be complicit. I wonder if the police unions would also be held... Oh. Um, you know, in contempt because they don't allow cops like that to to lose their job seventeen or eighteen times. Yeah, I'm. I've been a member of Broadcasters Union all my life, and getting. Uh, uh, were you there when it was, uh, Riff was union? Yep, I sure was. Yep. So you, so you're you're gonna be eligible for uh, an after American Federation Television Radio Artist pension. Yeah, for sure, I am. It's crazy. You know that. Okay, I've told a couple of people. They go, oh, yeah. I go, yeah. <laughs> um, so I've been a union man for that union all my life, and uh, yet the cops don't even belong uh, in the union movement. I mean, they can have associations or whatever. It's up to them. But yeah, they're one of the major impediments. Gee, the head of the police union in uh, New York City, his name is Lynch. Oh. Truth, true story. Uh, <laughs> And, and, you know, he's the most ferocious defender of every uh, act of brutality and killing that, that those cops have, 
ever done. Well, you could say that's what the unions are supposed to do, defend their members. At one time, I almost got fired from RIF. In fact, they fired me. And the union uh, filed a grievance and got me right back. Really? Yeah. You know, I, I was trying to think of how many owners there there's been at RIF throughout the years, at least a, a half a dozen, wouldn't you say? Oh, God. Uh, yeah. I mean, now Beasley, uh, Greater Media. I can't. Great American. Great American. Uh, a- American Broadcasting Company, ABC. Yeah. Five, and I think there's a couple. There's a couple more. Does it surprise you, Peter, that the show, that Night Call, kind of withstood all those ownership changes, management changes, and everything? Well, to some extent, yeah, because there, uh, there, was ne- there is never, I shouldn't say never, that I know of, and this day there is no left-wing uh, regularly uh, airing uh, talk show on commercial radio. They're all on public stations, college stations, and what have you. Because, for instance, when I, I, I had a full-time talk show for three years from 2000 to 2003, myself and Jolene Jordan uh, were uh, co-hosts. It was a, a network owned by the United Auto Workers, the UAW. And we had 16 stations, and we began right before, right before the 2000 election. And after, you know, we just opened up on George Bush. Um, and called him a liar. And so we, I say we were premature Bush haters. Um, and, uh, uh, and, and every time I would say something like that, we'd lose another station. Mm. And, uh, you know, they were mostly small and medium cities, San Jose, California, and uh, Santa Fe, New Mexico, places like that. Um, and, uh, you know, a Chevy dealer owner would come in and say, whoa, 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 you got this communist on the air. Uh, I'm, I'm pulling my ads if uh, you... Uh, you know, you keep him on, and boom, well, you know, we were gone. I was down finally to one station. Wow. <laughs> there we go. Wow. <laughs> when, you were, when you were at REF, did management ever come to you and say, hey, man, your views are, are too extreme. You got to settle no, down. Never. They were. And it is a total accident of history and geography. It was Detroit and when WRF started. And, of course, all the you know, all the personalities that were in there then. An interesting thing that occurred, though, uh, when we started, you know, 1970, with all the personalities that were on the air, and, uh, you know, and at the other rock stations as well, they were all, you know, crazed, we were all crazed left-wing hippies, and the management were these really conservative people. And somewhere along the line, it actually flipped to the point where more DJs, the majority of DJs, were conservatives and the management were these liberals. Why? Why? Why do you suppose that happened? You know what I think? These uh, shock jock morning shows, except mm-hmm. for Howard, who was at who I was with at W four when Howard Stern when he was uh, there. But I, you know, I've thought about that and I really don't come up with it. And that's the, I mean, you know, who is making the most money? Uh, who is the most popular than morning shows? Right. And these yeah, guys. Yeah. Um, are, you know, uh, getting, it, it was almost, you know, because the whole ethos was liberal, they were rebellious, you know, they, they we're not going to be PC, you know, we're going to, you know, say this and, and, uh, you know, and I don't know, I, I'm not quite sure 
what it, uh, occurred. But uh, and it, it really is super interesting how, and, and the way you frame that is interesting too, how the, you know, the long-haired hippie DJs used to be the liberals and the, the corporate people at the top were conservatives and that flipped. Do you think the Riff audience has kind of changed its political persuasion over the years? Like, in, in other words, you've had a lot of lovers and a lot of haters over the years. I thought and you were going to put life there for a second. <laughs> you've had a lot of lovers. I'm going, hey, dude, you're not, <laughs> not going there. Okay. I'm sure I had a lot of people that loved the show, a lot of people that hated the show. Right. Yeah, that's probably a fair way of putting it. <laughs> there you go. Do you think that balance changed throughout from like the early 70s to maybe the last few years of the it show? Probably did. Well, I mean, the majority of WRIF listeners are the white working class, particularly the upper uh, uh, working class and the lower middle class, of which I would situate myself in. So I thought um, I was, uh, you know, talking to my brothers, most, uh, most of them being uh, young white men. And we've seen the demographics. I mean, for, since 1968, uh, white people have... The majority of white people have always voted for the Republicans. And for some reason, it ramped up with Trump. I mean, it's a little hard for me to understand his appeal. A lot of people have, uh, you know, made attempts at explanations, and some of them are uh, are pretty good. But um, uh, I, I think there was a change. And my show was ended in uh, 2016, the, the, the Sunday before the election, and I'm sure if the new owners listened in, they probably heard 80% of the audience calling in and supporting Trump. Mm. And I thought, wait a minute, here is this, our guy, our employee, that's arguing with every one of them and even hanging up on uh, uh, a, a number of them. I think also they, they thought, you, you know, the show originally, the only reason they had the show, as you know, because it had to meet the public service commitment of uh, our license for the Federal Communications Commission, because my official position was the public affairs director of WRIF, responsible for programming. Well, when I began, there used to have to be hours and hours of it. Uh, I can't remember, religious programming and um, all this uh, stuff uh, like that. Well, by the time they, uh, and, and, you know, someone said, weren't you angry at them? I said, nah, you know, it's their... It's their station, and I've had a long run, and, and who knows? Maybe, maybe they're even correct. I mean, my ego says, no, don't uh, – <laughs> was I fired or terminated? Don't, don't terminate me um, in terms of an objective business decision. Uh, maybe, you know, maybe it was okay. But um, they only – now I think they need 15 minutes a week. So I was getting, wow. a, I was getting a salary, not hourly. I was getting a salary. So wow. they're paying a salary and benefits – for shows that they didn't even really need in terms of the uh, the, the requirements. So, um, uh, oh, we were talking about the, the way they the way it looks. So, eighty percent of the audience is saying, "Well, Trump, blah blah, is good. He's great." And I'm arguing with them. And I mean, I would say, I mean, most people. If you get somebody on the air, I mean, how long? Um, I would. I won't even ask you about you, but, you know, if you like Fox News, how long can you listen to MSNBC? And if you like MSNBC, how long can you listen to Fox News? And the same thing, if some guy is on there going, blah, blah, liberal, radical, lefty, blah, 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 you're going to go, you know, F this guy. I'm, you know, I'm going to switch to another music station, which I think was their concern. Because we're a rock station, and in the first three calls, the first three or four calls was all, you know, was, uh, you know, 
uh, hey, my buddy just died. Can you play Freebird? You know, and, <laughs> right. And the phone screener would have to say, uh, we're doing a talk show right now. Um, I'll tell, you know, Peter to tell the next DJ when it's uh, when it's over. Coming up. Then, uh, since I was there at night, I pulled down my pants and Xeroxed my ass <laughs> and put it at, at the star of the tree. <laughs> so the general manager uh, get, uh, comes in and uh, was told by the office staff, sees it, goes apoplectic, gets a chair, stands up, grabs it off and balls it up and says, that goddamn worby. This is the History of WRIF, the podcast. 12 o'clock at a full moon. Welcome to WRIF's Night Call. Peter Werby here for the next three hours. We're going to talk with a man who's been doing a lot to, uh, to say no. Censorship doesn't have any part here in the United States, and freedom of expression should stay just that way, completely free. We're going to be talking with Frank Zappa. Legendary personalities from Detroit's iconic WRIF. That's really offensive to the American public, that they are so ignorant that they couldn't decide for themselves and need that kind of help. I mean, that's, that's drastic. If you want your children to be that sheltered from what's really happening in the world, because remember, the songs don't make the reality. The songs reflect the time. Here is Mike Staff and our special guest, Peter Werby. I'm not sure if our audience understands how unique it is and how unheard of in commercial radio or commercial rock radio that there's going to be a talk show that, yeah. that is on every Sunday night. I, I wonder, what, what, what do you suppose made Riff different or Detroit different in which a show like yours would be embraced and supported by management and listeners for so long? You know, this uh, questions like that, I'm always supposed to come up with a really smart answer. And <laughs> as I age, I increasingly answer things with I don't know. I, when I, I said a little earlier, I thought it was just a coincidence of, uh, of, of Detroit and of the station and the, the personalities. And I, the, the, the show became an institution. When I, why did I leave? Oh, yeah, I did a full-time talk show. Did you know that? That it was a full-time. I forgot about that. Mm. time on, on WRIF from 1972 to 1976. Really? This again, this again was FCC-driven, Federal Communication Commission-driven, because they said, hey, look, all you guys are doing is uh, selling beer ads and playing rock and roll, telling kids to kill themselves. You remember there was that whole um, uh, reaction of uh, politicians to uh, rock and roll. Rock right, and in, roll. in the 80s with Suicide Solution, and that's when Dee Snyder um, testified in front of Congress and so on well, and so forth. But even before. Oh, before so, that. So ABC, that owned the, the WRF at the time, said all over uh, the network, the, the radio network, we were going to have a talk show. So it went from different times. It went from 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. It went from 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. And I was on five days uh, uh, a week. And, uh, yeah, they were, you know, so it, it became established. Oh, yeah. And then uh, they, um, and I never did get along real well with the management at that time. In fact, one of them, the program director, fired me. That's when I said I, I you know, I had a union grievance and got hired back. So you can imagine relationships uh, uh, weren't the best. And one of the things, uh, I can tell stories like this. You can cut it out if you can. They, um, you know, uh, uh, copy machines 
were not were relatively new, say in 1974-1975, and the the uh, the general manager said um, he wanted all the DJs to put their face on the glass, take uh, take a Xerox of it, and then they were going to post it and make a uh, uh, a Christmas tree of it. It was at you know that time of the year, mm-hmm. and so I so I dutifully did one of my face really disliking even the, the, you know, the, the thought of what was going into my brain. But then, I, since I was there at night, I pulled down my pants and Xeroxed my ass and put it at, at the star of the tree. <laughs> so the general manager uh, comes in and I uh, was told by the office staff, sees it, goes apoplectic, gets a chair, stands up, grabs it off there, balls it up, and says, that goddamn Wormy. And someone said, how do you know uh, that's Wormy? He said, look at the hair all over the ass. (laughs) 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 What what the hell does that that mean? Uh, But then when when that that necessity of that FCC commitment to that much public service ended, uh, that's where Tom Bender, um, the general manager, that's where he started as a religious programmer for the Detroit Council of Churches. Mm-hmm. Um, he, um, they, they didn't have to do it anymore. And um, the general manager gleefully said, you're fired like that. And again, I was very stressed. And they, they, I, I said, why, why am I getting called into a meeting with a security guard uh, here? You know, so myself and my producer, what's her name? Diana Wing that there was a friend of uh, uh, Bender's. And, and, he, and he said, the two of you are terminated. And both of us stood up spontaneously. And, you know, I'd never hugged her before, which I think is a good idea with, uh, you know, station personnel. And we both were dancing around in a circle together. And I said, all right, thanks. Been fun. So... Uh, it's not the reaction he was expecting, that's for sure. <laughs> so, then, so then, though, they kept... They kept it on with, um, can't remember their names, with a woman who was uh, very, very good, and then uh, Mike Watson, hmm. uh, who, uh, who did the show. And then when our friend, who is the uh, music consultant um, for WRIF and WCX. Uh, Fred Jacobs. Fred Jacobs, yeah. Uh, he... He hired me back uh, part time on WRF in 1980 uh, or 81, I think. Uh, and he said, "Hey, do the do the talk show again." And you know, and then it was unbroken uh, till 2016. I don't even re- see. I, I don't even recall you ever having guest hosts if you're on vacation or gone. We. That's odd. It calls for memory, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> a couple of times we did um, uh, when Doug Podell. Oh, I think there was a guy named Steve Black that did it once. He did? Can we get him in on this? Is, is this allowable? Steve's a producer of this podcast. Yeah. Steve, Are you with yeah, us? I can always edit me out. But, yes. but yeah, I did it a couple of times, Peter. Oh, oh, Jolene did it a number of times by herself. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, I, I remember. In fact, I used to urge her. She would have been, she would have been good as a, a talk show host because for a couple of times she did guest shots on like MSNBC and on CNN as you know guest commentators and what have you. But uh, no, I would. Um, I mean, you know how it is in uh, radio. I always said that, that I, since I 
did weekends. I could get 11 days off. I could leave on a Monday, be gone through that week, and then I had to be back by the next Saturday, no matter where on the planet uh, I went. That's a pretty easy gig, if you think about it. Well, you know, I tell people I once or twice tried honest work and uh, terrible. Hey, Peter, how do you think um, how do you think the Internet changed the dynamics of Night Call? Like suddenly you're being streamed all over the world instead of just being broadcast on Sunday nights in Detroit. Did that have an impact on on you and kind of your your mindset on the show when you're on the air? Not my mindset. I mean, made uh, made. Uh, finding out information a lot easier. There used to be a, a listener um, in uh, Finland, up above the Arctic Circle, university town, Olu, Olu, Finland. Mm. Uh, and he would call in uh, through the internet every every week almost. And I remember uh, somebody called in one time and said, uh, you know, you think your show's so great, you're just a nobody, you're a failure, you're a flop, you're just stuck away on this late Sunday night. If you're any good, you'd be on, you know, full time and you'd be in the middle of the day. And I said, you know what, pal? In Olu, Finland, I'm morning drive. Right. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> hey, how do you suppose um, social media changed the way that you could express your views? Well, you know, a lot. I mean, more so almost since I've left. I mean, I used to do, you know, I had a, uh, a website and a Facebook page and all that. But, it, but now it's so consuming of, uh, of you know, and, and mixed with uh, terrestrial radio. I mean, I one of the things that I would usually do uh, during my shifts, um, I, don't, I don't know about you, but I'd, be, I'd read books. Mm-hmm. I, uh, you know, I would read huge, you know, Okay. Magazines or books or the newspaper or yeah. what have you. And now these DJs are every minute they're, uh, you know, they're posting, you know, Hey, I'm playing three from Led Zeppelin. What's your favorite? You know, do you, do you, do anybody remember when Led Zeppelin came to Detroit? Uh, tell me about it, you know, and, and on and on. I mean, they, they are actually uh, earning their money. I'm laughing because I'm not always sure I did, but uh, well, it's it's really cool um, for a DJ to be able to connect with his audience that way, um, and for the audience to be able to connect together that way through social media. That wasn't obviously wasn't possible. Do you think, um, Peter, that social media is a good thing or a bad thing, especially when it comes to political discourse? You know, it's like every piece of technology. I mean, what would we do without our cars, right? How would we get around? What would we do? On the other hand. Uh, you know, millions of people have been killed by them since uh, 1900. It necessitates oil. I mean, you know, so it's all, um, uh, you know, the give and take. I mean, I, I, uh, I'm, an, I'm an admin on a Facebook page for my neighborhood association, and I just had uh, myself and this other neighbor, we had to take down this discussion, and people started talking about rats in the neighborhood, and suddenly it turned into, what was that book, uh, I can't, um, geez, I can't even remember, uh, Lord of the Flies, remember that, where these kids get stuck on an island and they all turn on each other, um, and, uh, you know, and, I, and we had to write, neighbors, what are you doing, you wouldn't talk like this to each other in person, right. you, know, you wouldn't call me a libtard, um, you know, if we were sitting across from uh, one another, you, you know, and, and on and on, so it's loud, great expression, 
You know, I mean, given where I started uh, being interested in politics and my main source of the kind of left political information I want was a weekly newspaper, a weekly newspaper. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I sometimes, and I, you know, and I'm not, I would, I mean, there's been times when there's been daily left-wing newspapers in the United States, you know, not since probably the 1940s. But, um, you know, I wasn't sitting around thinking, gee, I wish there was a, you know, the, the Detroit News rather than being arch-conservative was, uh, you know, a liberal publication. Um, so, I mean, I could have done, uh, I could have done without all of this. I mean, now I write, and I'm writing a lot. And I think, how the hell did I ever write on a, on a typewriter? <clears throat> what did I do when I made mistakes? I mean, I know what I did. I had to cut up pieces, uh, cut up pieces of paper, and then scotch tape them back together, and sometimes just type out lines and paste those over. And and so, you know, that. But um, on the other hand, um, you know, people tell me uh, that they're being threatened online by these uh, nefarious forces that say we know. You know, we went online, we, we know exactly where you live, we know where your kids go to school, and all that. And probably 999 times out of 1,000, nothing's going to happen. But it's what gives this little chill of uh, uh, fear um, to somebody. Well, yeah, and I do think it gives people, people feel freer to be able to, um, to kind of be ruder or meaner online and, and like sure. they wouldn't do it face to face. Now I talked to a buddy of mine recently who was always best friends with a mutual friend. And I asked him how that friend was doing. And he said that he hadn't talked to him in months because he couldn't stand his liberal views. Huh. Yet I also have a friend who the day after Trump was elected, she went on Facebook and wrote, if any of her friends voted for Trump, then to unfriend her because she can't be friends with anyone who voted for him. It's just, it's so extreme. And I just wonder, you know, when there's so much social upheaval going on in the 60s, was there this kind of intolerance for other opinions in which well, you couldn't even be friends with someone who didn't share your point of view? No. I mean, we, I, mean I didn't. Uh, I mean, I've always uh, either lived in predominantly African-American neighborhoods or the city I live in now is, uh, you know, 50% white, 50% black. So, for instance, I know where I know the house in which every Republican lives in this whole area because, uh, you know, of, of election signs where, you know, if it was more 50-50 or, you know, predominantly uh, re- Republican, you wouldn't. Now, I, I play, I'm, I'm a regular handball player. Well, I was a regular handball player until this, uh, although we're back playing outside again. And all these guys that I play with on the east side of Detroit are all these traditional conservative Republicans, a lot of them are, you know, small business owners. And, you know, some of them even don't think a lot of Trump, but there's only one thing worse than Trump. And that would have been Hillary Clinton, you know. So um, we, uh, uh, we, you know, they're the, you know, and you, you always think, you know, Trump supporters are the most evil, awful, mean-spirited, stupid, uh, racist people imaginable. Um, yet, you know, the games are in- integrated. The, the, a lot of the players, uh, these conservative guys are involved in charities. A lot of them come down to Detroit to do stuff. And they're, they're nice people. Um, but guess what we never talk about, ever. Right. Of yeah. course. Yeah. Um, I mean, I wore... Um, 
you know, always trying to provoke people. I often <laughs> uh, wore this uh, T-shirt that, that said ITMFA, which that is, can can I say any word I want? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, it's impeach the motherfucker already. <laughs> um, that, and not one of them ever asked me what it stood for. Or yeah, one, yeah, says, one of them said, is that your union? <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, uh, but, um, I don't know, you know, um, and don't tell me, don't tell me. I mean, I don't know what your politics are, but our friendship goes back far enough that mm -hmm. even if you were, um, you know, if you're a Republican, uh, you know, it would be like those guys. We just wouldn't talk about it. If I met somebody and they said, um, they were a Trump supporter, I would just, I wouldn't have any interest in being friends with them in the slightest. I, mean, I got enough friends. I got lots of friends. I got too many friends. Right, new friends you're talking about. <laughs> I don't want new friends if they support Trump. I don't even want any new friends if they support uh, the Democrats. I got, a, I got enough that fill my time. and lives in this whole area because, uh, you know, of, of election signs where, you know, if it was more 50-50 or, you know, predominantly uh, re Republican, you wouldn't. Now, I, I play, I'm, I'm a regular handball player. Well, I was a regular handball player until this, uh, although we're back playing outside again. And all these guys that I play with on the east side of Detroit are all these traditional conservative Republicans. A lot of them are, you know, small business owners. And, you know, some of them even don't think a lot of Trump, but there's only one thing worse than Trump, and that would have been Hillary Clinton, you know. So um, we... Uh, uh, we, you know, they're the, you know, and you, you always think, you know, Trump supporters are the most evil, awful, mean-spirited, stupid, uh, racist people imaginable. Um, yet, you know, the games are in, integrated. The, the, a lot of the players, uh, these conservative guys are involved in charities. A lot of them come down to Detroit to do stuff. And they're, they're nice people. Um, but guess what we never talk about, ever. Right. Of yeah. course. Yeah. Um, I mean, I wore, um, you know, always trying to provoke people. I <laughs> often uh, wore this uh, T-shirt that, that said ITMFA, which that is, can can I say any word I want? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, it's impeach the motherfucker already. <laughs> um, that, and not one of them ever asked me what it stood for. Or yeah, one yeah, says, one of them said, is that your union? <laughs> um, so, uh, but um, I don't know, you know, um, and don't tell me, don't tell me. I mean, I don't know what your politics are, but our friendship goes back far enough that mm -hmm. even if you were, um, you know, if you're a Republican, uh, you know, it would be like those guys. We just wouldn't talk about it. If I met somebody and they said um, they were a Trump supporter, I would just, I wouldn't have any interest in being friends with them in the slightest. I mean, I got enough friends. I got lots of friends. I got too many friends. Right, new friends you're talking about. <laughs> I don't want any new friends if they support Trump. I don't even want any new friends if they support uh, the Democrats. I got, a, I got enough that fill my time. So, Peter, you're uh, you're most uh, well known uh, to the Riff audience as you're as a talk show host for Riff, but you're also a rock and roll DJ, man. Yeah. Talk about your role at Riff as a DJ, spinning the tunes over the years. Well, you know, I, when I came into this all, it was through Dick Kernan, as we were talking earlier, and he said, uh, hey, um, I can't remember why there was a slot, but there was a, they had weird shifts, and one began at 11 o'clock at night. He said, do you want to be a DJ? And I said, yeah, and 
Kernan worked the control boards and all I, and he even opened the mic for me when we huh. he sat there with me whenever I interviewed people. It wasn't a phone in dog show. It was um, just interviewing guests. So, um, and this was 1971. Yeah. Um, mm. So um, I said, yeah, great, great. Yeah. You know, it was, um, was it free form? Yeah, it was totally free form then. And um, they, uh, uh, so, so, okay, you can start at 11 p.m. You'll go on right after Jerry Lubin. And I know Lubin, I knew Lubin well from WABX. So I go in there and he's, oh, great, man, gave, you know, five. We, people didn't used to give high five. They gave, I, I can't illustrate, can I? They would give <laughs> like a sliding low five. That, you know, that would, wow, man. Oh, yeah. cool. So I said, well, how do you do this? And he said, well, here, you take, you put the, the, the LP on the turntable, you turn it on, and it slides on this felt disc on the bottom, and you put the, um, you know, explain the mechanics. Yeah. And he said, okay, I got to go. I said, wait a minute. <laughs> wait a minute. What do you mean you're going? Um, that was one of the, I mean, and he said, it's all yours, man. And so it would be like taking your next-door neighbor, show him how to, put one LP on the air and then leave it. Um, <laughs> well, and then the free form part of it is really cool because you're left there and you have a room full of albums. You can play whatever you want. You know what? That used to cause me so much stress because <laughs> you were judged. I mean, that, that was part of the problem. We were playing for an audience of six or eight, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, uh, uh, it was, not as the audience, you know, is uh, um, Mark um, Pat, what's the name? Asman. Well, yeah, any, any of these uh, DJs, um, you know, they're going to be listening and thinking, you know, Jerry Lubin's going to be listening, and what if I play the wrong Stones uh, song <laughs> or what have you. But then I was there, I finally, you know, I did get the knack of it fairly well, and then um, there was this DJ, Barbara Holiday. Um, who was an, a major piece of work, and uh, and they had put in they put in this playlist, and Barbara Holiday comes in drunk as can be at eleven o'clock, and and I said, you know, Barbara, you are too drunk to go on the air. Let me stay and get to get out of here, man. I'm gonna do it. She gets on the air, first words out of her mouth on commercial radio. Oh, you motherfuckers! I'm here to kick out the motherfucking jams. And here's my pals, the MC5s that, that light into that song, followed by some freeform jazz. And that was her last, that was her last day. Was her I'm day. sure it was. And she apparently went on. I was listening all the way home, and I'm thinking, is she? And it was just crazy music the entire time. And, you know, there's... I've actually come to a point, you know, people, a lot of people are, um, you know, are people that we say are too hip for the room, are contemptuous of commercial radio and playlists because, uh, the, you know, the music is so broad. Well, that's why there are MP3 players or used to be CD players or, or what have you. You want to hear that? Go play it. Because what it used to be, I was going to play music I thought you should listen to. Mm -hmm. Now... I mean, although I don't, I think the testing is really flawed. Um, we're playing music that pretty much uh, people want to hear, and you can tell by the aggregate numbers of how many people are are, are listening. And um, I, you know, if I would be in the station, particularly WCSX, and I would hear "Take the Money and Run" by Steve Miller, uh, I would. Uh, oh no, I'm sorry. If I heard it on the radio, 
uh, I was listening to say CSX on the radio. I said, I can't believe they're playing it again. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, because some of those songs, you probably know this better than me. I think they told me one time, Dream On was being played 270 times a year. Yes. It's crazy. So, yeah. So, but even the most avid listeners, what they call in the trade, a P1, hears it maybe 60 times. Right. And, and, and if they're an avid listener, they must be okay with it. But when I was in the station and I would hear Dream On, I would find my, and it was in the background, I would find myself rather unconsciously tapping my foot to it or, or appreciating it. The bad news is, in many ways, classic rock particularly uh, has become some, something of a music. But if it, but if it soothes people at work, if it gives them memories of their youth, if it introduces young people to uh, new music, what the hell? You know? Right. Yeah. You know, people used to always ask me, like, you know, why do you guys play You Shook Me All Night Long so much? And I'd say, well, listen, go to a bar. And people go to a jukebox and they put in their hard-earned money and they select You Shook Me All Night Long. Right. <laughs> you know, people like familiar songs and uh, there's some sort of comfort in that for sure. But, you know, back when um, it was freeform radio, listeners used to turn to the DJs to get turned on to new music because you were the connection that the listener had to that music. There was a guy that I was trying to think of his name earlier, Mark. Um, he was a big, tall, thin DJ, worked at WABX. And he would, he would uh, put um, an album on. He said, wow, they just brought this in and put it on. He said, that's crap. And he'd throw it out of the window, window of the David Stott building downtown on like the 18th floor. I mean, you could take somebody's head off. <laughs> so funny. Coming up. They fired Dick Kernan, the legend, and they said, we got to go totally commercial. So we were playing what we want, and there was this little blip in the early 70s where um, that older music from the early 60s, or original rock and roll, uh, pop music took on uh, uh, some cachet. So I was playing um, uh, Ellie Oop by the Hollywood Argyles. You ever hear that? <laughs> I have not, no. Google it, man. <laughs> There's a man in the funny papers we all know. He lives way back a long time ago. Uh, the story is this, that uh, in case you haven't gotten a message by now, uh, we're a new radio station, you see. And uh, we've got new call letters. That's just a symbol of the progress we're making. Legendary personalities from Detroit's iconic WRIF. I think it's going to be a groovy radio station. It's going to get better. The hipster's life is strongly influenced by jazz music. Much, if not most, of the hip vocabulary originated with jazz musicians. Isn't that right, Mr. Romo? Yes, that's right. Uh, It's true. Now take, for example, the riff, the conversational riff which is a spoken counterpart of the jazz riff, which is an instrumental solo improvised around a set of chords or upon a given theme. Oh, my. You've had a chance, Peter, to work with a lot of the, just the rock and roll legendary DJs that have been in and out of riff throughout the years. Just curious, give me your thoughts on some of them. Like, for example, Arthur P. You got a good Arthur P. story? Arthur P., yeah. One time... Um after I had just bought this house, this house, uh, I've been living here since 1984, and the house cost um, uh, $39,000. Um, nice little house, you know. And um, so uh, Arthur had just bought a red two-seater 
uh, Mercedes convertible. And, uh, and I said, what, what did that, what did that cost you? I think, uh, 42, he's 42,000. Jesus, I said, it costs more than my house. He said, you should have bought a car. <laughs> he would always say, and the other thing Arthur said, I love, he said, uh, yeah, he said, you know what your problem is, Worby? I said, Arthur Penn, I was going to tell me my problem. I said, what do you think? He said, you only give 100%. I said, <laughs> I said meaning? He said, I give 120%. Every every day. Okay. Yeah, you have to think. Is that a compliment or is that a, a criticism? I, I know that you respected Drew and Mike as much as me. Uh, you got some Drew and Mike um, thoughts or ideas, memories? No, I mean, when they, that cliche, the hardest working man in show business, mm-hmm. Drew Lane uh, certainly fits that. He lives just down the street from me. And um, uh, I don't know. He since he's I mean he would get there at four thirty in the morning sometimes and yeah. Go, yeah I saw the show last night so he wasn't I mean I don't know what he could have seen the tape of it and uh, I used to, I used to say man you two guys look like thirty miles of bad road um, <laughs> and, and they did I think it was it really hurt both their health particularly Mike's sure it did no uh, you know uh, who passed away and uh, but he was you know so dedicated to that and. Uh, and, and one of these personalities that just clicked in with, um, uh, with people. When at, I, I worked with, um, you know, Howard Stern at W4, as I said, and he was uh, just kind of quiet in meetings. Uh, one of the things is I associate, uh, you ready for this one? I associate morning shows with colonoscopies. Um, <laughs> I can't I, imagine. You know what I, mean? <laughs> I, don't get, I get up. And the earliest I ever get up is 8 o'clock. So if I'm listening to a morning show, man, that means I'm like going to a doctor for something. <laughs> Somebody wants to stick something where the sun don't shine, you know. Um, but uh, so I never really heard a lot of uh, of morning show, um, you know, uh, shows. But I, when I would go in there, I would always. Um, I, I mean, it, it takes a lot to prepare for a daily talk show. In fact. I said earlier, I did this daily talk show for three years, this nationally syndicated show. And and I suppose this is okay, and maybe you do this, but when I jokingly call myself a layabout, I mean, it's it's really kind of true. I am kind of a lazy guy, although if I told you what I was doing now, you, you probably uh, wouldn't believe it. But that doing that talk show was the first thing I thought about when I got up, mm-hmm. the last thing I thought about when I went to bed, when I got up in the middle of the night, with th- I, I finally had to keep a pad of paper there. I would ruminate about it through the night. I was perpetually angry at the incompetent uh, um, management that the UAW had hired to, uh, uh, you know, to, to run this uh, st- uh, this syndicate of uh, talk shows. Um, but yeah, and Steve Dahl was, um, mm. you know, he again. These a lot of these guys off air. Um, they they come super alive when um, you know when, when when the mic goes on. I mean, yeah, you know. it, it does surprise people when they find out that radio DJs uh, who are a big personality on the air are actually introverts. And Drew Lane, um, who's who connects with people through the warmth of his personality, isn't a wild, is not a wild guy broadcaster. Mm-hmm. No, yeah. not at all. Yeah, yeah. So he uh, he in person was uh, you know much more. Uh, you know, like he was in person. You know, uh, talking about the playlist, let me just quickly tell you this story. Um, there was, um, 
you know, I don't think about all this so much, but uh, there was this, he was this, and is this fabled programmer. He started when he was about 17 or 18, and they hired him in a riff. They fired Kernan. They fired Dick Kernan, the legend. And they said, we got to go totally commercial. So we were playing what we want, and there was this little blip in the early 70s where um, that older music from the early 60s, or original rock and roll, uh, pop music took on uh, uh, some cachet. So I was playing... Um, uh, Ellie Oop by the Hollywood Argyles. Did you ever hear that? <laughs> Not, no. Google, Google it, man. It's a funny <laughs> show. Uh, or uh, Stranded in the Jungle. You ever hear that? I was stranded in the jungle. So, uh, so the hotline rang. Hello. Uh, hi, man. It's um, Lee Abrams. It's, uh, it's Lee. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you always laugh. I said, he said, where'd you get that uh, song you're playing? I said, what do you think? I was here in the show. He said, okay, man, great show. <laughs> you know, he comes in uh, and walks out with half of <laughs> half the albums in the studio. Um, you know, actually, they hadn't put in a playlist then, but they wanted to make sure that, uh, that, uh, that the Hollywood Argyles uh, didn't make it onto uh, uh, Riff again. Well, yeah, and Lee was one of the architects of uh, program radio. I mean, yeah. he had that vision, and um, he kind of began it at the Riff. I never knew stations were rated when I started. Hmm. I had no idea. I thought you just did it and people were cool and, you know, people told you, yeah, ABX is cool, you know. And, yeah. <laughs> that was it. and everybody you knew listened to uh, ABX, that, that, which is interesting, by the way. When I've told people that the public radio station in Detroit, WDET, is like 22nd in the, um, in the market, and they go, what? That's impossible. Everybody I know listens to uh, WDET. I go, right. Yeah. Everyone you know. And it does not extend very far beyond that. Um, so, you know, talk about uh, being in bubbles. I mean, WDET does a good job in what it does. Sure. But, I mean, the, these stations, as Tom Bender, the general manager one time said, uh, we are not a family although we are sometimes friends and close, we are a business and mm-hmm. we are here to make a profit. And we are, we make a profit by having as high a rating as possible. And what if he, and, if, and what he didn't say is if playing uh, LAU by the Hollywood Argyles three times an hour made, uh, brought um, a listenership, we'd be doing that. Right. Right. Why not? I mean, I don't fault him. I never, no, not at all. I mean, I never objected one bit. I mean, you know, people every once in a while would say, yeah, you know, I can't believe it. you never you never go out of uh, format. You never I go, yeah. Well, you know, anyway, it interrupts my reading. I, you know, if I have to start <laughs> thinking of my own uh, music, but I believed them. I actually believed in the program. Sometimes they were wrong. I remember being a couple of times at stations. Riff did this thing where one time where they were going um, kind of mushy rock and roll. I can't even think of who they were playing, but they had this television ad where they showed all these albums, like ACDC, being thrown in the trash. I've yeah, never throw seen away such, the heavy metal. Yes, I've never seen such an idiotic, even yeah. if they were going to do it. Right, yeah. You know, um, and uh, another time on W4, under Jerry Lubin, we got into somewhat fusion, um, you know, rock and roll, and that was a disaster. But they said, play that? I played it. You know, it's their deal. You mm-hmm. know, when yeah. it, it went down... They went down. I didn't go down. It wasn't because I was playing, you know, Ellie Oop. It was because they told us to play, uh, what was it, Bad, Bad Leroy Brown. And, you know, and, uh, I do know that one. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So as, as Riff is, you know, it's approaching its 50th anniversary and it's one of the few commercial radio stations that has maintained the same format for 50 years. Um, what do you suppose it is, Peter, about the Riff that has made it so endearing to its listeners and the people of Detroit for so long? Well, it's, uh, it's, it's the personalities, of course, and uh, you always think there's never going to be another Arthur P., and there never will be, uh, you know, mm-hmm. Steve Costan and Ann Carlini and, and, uh, and you mm-hmm. and, and maybe me. But um, it's, it's partly the music. There's been genius of uh, programming, Doug Podell, and um, the, 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 the last guy. Um, Mark Pennington. Mark Pennington. Sorry, Mark, if you're listening. Just a little uh, brain fart here. Um, and, uh, you know, and there were some blips that they made some mistakes, but they always came uh, back, um, you know, on their, uh, their feet. You know, Michael Mayer, um, he was, yeah, Michael Mayer was the PD. Were you there when he was the program director? I was there when he was doing sales. Yeah, well, he, that, he's a great salesman. And yeah. he, he wasn't a bad program director, but his, his desk would be covered an inch thick. Uh, the same with Joy Erbiel, who was another program. Mm-hmm. Um, and they worked their butts off. Um, and, uh, and particularly Michael would put out four memos a day, just so you couldn't say, I didn't know I was supposed to do that. You know, um, Mark Pazman, the uh, great friend and a, a terrific blues player, became yeah. the, the, um, the, uh, uh, the program director. And so I'd go into his office, you could absolutely clean, not a paper on it. And he's got his electric guitar. He said, who's this man? Who, who does this? <laughs> and I said, ZZ Top. He said, you're guessing. Come on, let me do it again. And I, I don't know if I remember it or not. And he'd say, let's go to lunch. And I'd go, yeah. <laughs> We're off. It didn't seem to have any less success uh, under him. But for some reason, I don't even know why, you know, um, there was um, – uh, you know, why things, you know, why they switched program director. I never paid any attention. There was what, was it Mark Pennington too? He was, uh, mm-hmm. he was a program director. Were you, you were never a program director, were you? Nope, never program director. And uh, Tom Bender was a program director. So yeah, early on. And so, <laughs> and, 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 you know, the, the, the people say Detroit's like a small town. And it could be, in fairness, although we have African-American listeners, it's mostly a station that plays white rock and roll, that you know that goes out to mostly a uh, a, a non uh, non internal migration um, white youth population that go that is to say um, you know uh, middle class and upper class people oh I'm moving to California I'm moving to New York you know I'm moving you know most of the people here uh, like in the suburb where I live uh, you know people take pride in yeah my father lives down you know, down the street and what have you. So this is our stage, one of our stage, maybe the single, you know, I mean, I ended my career with WCSX, although the talk show was still on RIP. But, but people have intense loyalty to WR because it's uh, our hometown uh, station. I think that's, uh, I think that's a lot of it. And I listen, I try to listen to some of the other stations on the air, and I think, who are these people? that are on the air, and what, what is that music they're playing? I, right. You know, I, uh, I always said that music sounded better on the riff for some reason. You know? <laughs> but so I'm still, yeah, I'm real busy. You know, I mean, I, um, when people say they retire and they have nothing to do, I just uh, I have more to do now than, uh, than I think before uh, when I was working. 
Yeah, so Night Call ended in 2016. What are you doing? What have you been doing? <clears throat> well, for one thing, I'm just finishing up uh, uh, what, what, what I'm thinking the best word for it, a uh, fictionalized memoir, mm. uh, um, mostly that just takes place in 1967, that takes uh, into account uh, the riots. Um, and it, uh, so it's a lot about violence, um, because those were, you know, very violent uh, times, uh, to be sure. And that's taken a, a lot of work, and uh, probably more, you know, I think about it, sometimes, unless you have a really big seller, if you sell 2,000 copies of a novel, you're not doing too badly. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm thinking, yeah, you know, you click on the riff, uh, you know, you open the mic on a riff, and there's thousands and thousands of people listening, and this is, you know... There's, um, I finished a first draft, and I'm looking at it, and I'm thinking, is this good enough to publish? And a friend of mine who's, uh, you know, a, uh, a published author said, it's called your shitty first draft. Uh-huh. <laughs> You're probably going to have to go through it another six times. And I'm thinking, I'm going to have to read 320-page books six times? I'm going to go out of my mind. So that's taking a lot of time. I still write for the Fifth Estate magazine now, that instead of a weekly paper, as it was, now comes out three times a year. Um, play handball a lot, um, active in my community, do some gardening. and um, Yeah, Peter, for the longest time, you didn't like to share your age, but I read an article uh, that you did in the Metro Times recently, and it kind of sounds like you're okay with it now. Wait, really? Wait, <laughs> I did, no. In, uh, this is the 11th, in eight, in eight days, uh, Juneteenth, I'll be uh, 80 years old. That is absolutely amazing. And I think I I speak for anyone who knows you or who has ever known you. You have aged better than anyone we've ever known in our entire lives. What is your secret? All right. Think it's an accident of genes for one thing. You know, mm-hmm. you, you know, you never know what cards turning over at any age. So, um, never had any kids, and that's that's most parents will laugh when you uh, when you say that. Are you a parent? By- <laughs> oh yeah. So you go. It ages you. <laughs> you kind of roll your eye, but I think it is. I mean, kids is you know, and sometimes I feel badly that uh, my wife and I never had children, um, and you know, this would be a point where I'd have grandchildren or great grandchildren mm-hmm. and as much you know as much as you love them they do cause stress and sometimes unhappiness and disappointment and all that so you know that's gone and this probably could even rankle some of the hard-working people that are listening to this i never worked real hard in my life <laughs> and and i'll tell you being born if if i would have um you know if i would have behaved in life uh, when I was born, when uh, you are, I'd, I'd be on Skid Row. Right? Mm-hmm. But because of an accident of time, that's what I said, I wound up on my feet, financially stable. You know, like right now, there's not a union at WRIF. Um, then there was. I, I get a, besides getting a Social Security, I get a union pension. Uh, right. Even for all my layabout uh, uh, ways. And also, um, the, the most important thing, about uh, aging, I think, is just uh, stay in denial uh, <laughs> as long as you can. Act, um, act like, uh, act like you want to be. If you want to be, yeah. um, I mean, I don't. You can be silly. I'm not going to act like I'm 25. I don't have a little sports car and uh, you know going out with uh, 30 year olds. Um, but uh, what I mean is, you know, play handball or play tennis or mm-hmm. you know, go to the gym. Um, take care of yourself, you know, your diet and, and what have you. And, uh, you know, you can, you can extend, uh, you can extend 
life. And besides, I was going to have a big 80th birthday party. Of course, that's off. So you guys uh, are invited to my 90th. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure you'll look exactly the same. Well, hey, Peter, how do you want to be remembered? Oh, my God. I don't know. Um, what? That? No, here, we're going to have to get Steve to do a, edit out all this uh, silence and umming. And, uh, um, I don't know. Um, someone who acted uh, ethically in the world that uh, was uh, that tried to make the world better, kinder, more loving. Uh, I said uh, earlier that I talk, heard a speech by Martin Luther King Jr. And he had this concept called uh, the beloved community. And uh, that's one where you don't yell at people and you, uh, that there's a place for everybody and you, it's filled with compassion and uh, even, even um, and, and some tolerance uh, for difference and, uh, and not uh, the desire for power over people. I mean, that, uh, that takes a revolution, though, yeah. at least in attitudes. But, you know, we can be that. We can, you know, start, uh, start with each of us. Amen, brother. Okay. Hey, Peter, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to have known you all these years, almost 30 years. And yeah. uh, I've really been looking forward to this conversation. So well, thanks for coming on the podcast. You haven't aged, you haven't aged much either. <laughs> thank you. I'm, I'm uh, in denial, too. I'm thinking yeah, I'm right. acting young.